You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Well, again, I want to welcome you. I have sort of this one last shot for the end of 2019 to speak to us as a church family. And I thought I would take this opportunity to sort of address the thing. Now, when I say the thing, our elders and our staff probably pretty much know what I'm talking about. When they'll ask me, what is that burden that is on you as a pastor, as the leader of a campus congregation? What is the thing that keeps you up at night that will sort of make you sit up with a cold sweat and just be like, ah, ah, ah. And it's simply this that people who come to this campus in particular, or really all of Bethel in general, they will come, they will enjoy and experience who we are, what we do, but after a mere few weeks, they'll sort of flitter off and we'll never see them again. I like to say it this way, that our front door is actually quite nice. Our front door is welcome and it's inviting and it's warm and it's hospitable. And we have the foundry downstairs and all of our discipleship age specific ministries are really good and welcoming. We bring people in. We do a good job of that. But unfortunately, our back door is just as open. So many people will come in and they'll sit with us, be with us for three, four, five, six weeks perhaps, and then we'll just never see them again. And that just drives me crazy. It burdens and breaks my heart. And I wonder what's going on. And of course, I always automatically assume that it's because of my preaching. And probably it is. But more often than not, in reality, it's because those people were never actually known. They were never contacted. They were never connected. And so they feel it was easy to come. It's just as easy to leave. And so I want to address that this morning. I want to talk about what does it mean to be a church where we continue to spruce up the front door, if you will, to to sweep the porch because company's coming. But also, how do we sort of close the back door so that those who come in will want to stay, will be connected, will be in community with one another? So this morning, I've titled this message, Community. How do we have community? This morning, we're going to have a one-sermon sermon series. At Bethel, we like to preach through entire books of the Bible, and so this morning, we're going to do that. We're going to preach through an entire book of the Bible. So if you've got your Bibles, I invite you to turn to the epistle of 3 John. It's really a book. It really is. It's in your Bible. You might not have ever seen it before, but 3 John. Go to the maps, turn left, you'll be there in no time. The book of 3 John. We're going to read through this whole book and then we'll see how we can apply this and have some principles for each of our lives as individuals, as family units, as households, and of course, as a church. The book of 3 John, it's the third epistle we have from the Apostle John. There's not a whole lot to it. It's 15 verses. It's about 300 words in the original language. It's very concise. It's one of two letters, we would say, in the New Testament that are written specifically to an individual person, certainly intended to be read in the hearing of the church, but written to a person. The other one would be from the Apostle Paul to Philemon. We don't know where the letter was sent to. We're pretty certain who carried the letter, a man named Demetrius. We'll meet him in a moment. But more than likely, this is written to one of the churches in the Roman province of Asia Minor, sometime in the mid-60s A.D. So the Apostle John is probably also in his mid-60s. 
Um, it's been 30 or so years since the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. And so for three and a half decades-ish, the Apostle John has been ministering in what is today Western Turkey. And he writes this letter specifically to a person to be read in the hearing of the entire church. So this little efficient 15 verse, 300 word letter has some very pertinent and practical ecclesiology for us. As I've been thinking about where we've come in 2019, where I pray we will go in 2020, I think this is a very practical letter for us. So the book of 3 John, I'm just going to walk through this very briefly. On my Bible, it's all on one page. That's handy. So the book of 3 John, written by the apostle, again, this is almost certainly before his exile to the island of Patmos. He's in his mid-60s. It goes like this. The elder... John doesn't even identify himself by name. It's just the elder, the old guy. Presbuteros. It simply means the old guy. Just the old guy writing to somebody. Now, what's sort of amusing is he's old-ish by this point. He's in his mid-60s. That we know he will live at least another three and a half decades. Very solid church tradition says that he was carried in on a chair at past the age of 100 to preach as emeritus pastor at the church of Ephesus. So, here he's in his mid-60s calling himself the old guy. Well, guess what, Tigger? You've got a long way to go, right? The elder to the beloved Gaius. I want to stop there for just a moment. This is the Apostle John writing to a specific guy named Gaius. There's at least five different Gaiuses in the New Testament. There's a Gaius in Acts 19 who travels with Paul to Philippi and to Macedonia. There's a Gaius in the Galatian city of Derby. There's a guy that Paul mentions in Corinthians. There's a guy who tends to Paul while he's in prison in Rome. And then there's this Gaius. We don't know anything about him, really. We know that he's a leader in this particular church. But John's going to say, not once, not twice, not thrice, not four times, five times in this little letter to the elder, to the beloved Gaius. He's going to tell him five times that he is beloved. The word is agapete. It means you are loved by God. Not just God's okay with you, but God is crazy about you for your sake. God loves you with a self-sacrificial love. God loves you so much that he's actually willing. The sovereign king of the cosmos loves you so much, Gaius, that he's actually willing to suffer personally for your sake. That's what beloved means. I am willing to suffer for the sake of another. That's how much I love that person. And John's going to tell Gaius, you are beloved five times. This is great church leadership. Why does John tell Gaius he is beloved five times? I suspect it's because John, didn't, John understood that Gaius didn't really feel beloved. He was having a bit of a, probably a, of a discouragement crisis. That happens a lot of times in ministry. We get discouraged. We begin to feel like, man, it's not working. It's not worth it. Nothing's happening. These people don't, don't want to move forward, all these things. And so John tells Gaius five times, God loves you so much that God himself is willing to enter into personal suffering for your sake. Five times. He says, the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth. It's great, great. We have vertical love of Gaius from God. We have horizontal love of John the Apostle. He whom Jesus loved, who had been with Christ at his death, his resurrection. I love you 
in the truth. Now, that is, I, this is the reason I love John's epistles. Because John sort of bridges the generational gap. Older generations usually love to sort of focus in on doctrine and truth, which is good. We have to have that. Younger generations tend to focus in on community and love, which is good. We need both of those. And John is the great bridger of that gap. In 1 John chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, he wonderfully bridges the gap between truth and doctrine and love and community. And he continues that here, whom I love in the truth. So let me say this as dogmatically and directly as I can. Love, not some hallmark or pop song version of love, but love, biblically, is always based on truth. If it is not based on truth, then you can call that emotion whatever you like, but don't call it love because that one's taken. Love is always based on truth. And what is the truth to which John is referring? He's referring specifically to the gospel. We say this all the time down here. The gospel is the good news, the great story, the awesome announcement of what God has done in Christ to redeem us to himself and to one another. It's a person, it's Jesus, and he's done it. I love you, Gaius, in the truth. Because of the gospel, that which was irreconcilable, that which was a misfit toy, I love. This is how John opens up this letter, re, uh, reaching out to Gaius. John knows that the gospel is that great leveler of the playing field. As I look at all these faces in this room, we have this one great common denominator that is the cross of Christ. Carl Henry said, it is impossible to be arrogant standing at the cross. As you look around the other faces in this room, you might think, well, at least I'm not that guy. I'm better than her. And good golly, thanks that I'm not him. All the, yeah, but... But if you maintain a proximate posture to the cross, it eradicates and obliterates any arrogance whatsoever. Well, verse 2, John calls him beloved again. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you. And this, now this is challenging. I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. It's a little bit of a wonky translation. What John essentially tells Gaius, Gaius, I hope and I pray that your physical well-being is as good as your spiritual well-being. Yikes! I think if my physical health was on par with my spiritual health most days, I couldn't get out of bed. Some of you are struggling and you're here this morning and you're thinking, Ugh, but I know you. And your physical health is not matching up to your spiritual health. I pray, like John says, that your physical health would rise to your spiritual well-being. I wonder if you've ever thought about people as you entertain them, as you encounter them, as you come across them. Man, I pray for that guy, that his physical health would be as strong, as hale and hearty as his spiritual well-being. What if that was actually the case in your case? What if your physical health was a projection of your spiritual health. How much time do we spend cultivating one over the other? That's interesting. John says, I pray this for you, Gaius, that your physical health would li line up with your spiritual health. 4, verse 3, I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. Gaius, I have heard report about you, that you are Parapateo, you are walking around in the sphere of the gospel. 
all that you are, all that you do, all that you say, all that you teach is in the sphere of the gospel. I've heard about, and I rejoice, John says, I love to hear this report about you. And then verse four, sort of the, uh, the crux, the central verse of this little letter, verse four, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Truth is a central notion, a central idea for John. This is the whole point of what John's trying to say. John, who's an older man by this point, has probably experienced a whole lot of different joys that life has to offer. And yet, what is his greatest joy? It's kind of surprising. He was the disciple that Jesus loved. He is the disciple that gets to care for the Mary, for Mary mother of Jesus. He was locked in mission and fellowship with the other disciples. He had planted churches. He had overseen the growth of the gospel and the churches in that region. And yet, nothing brought him joy like hearing that his children were walking around in the truth. Just Again, notice, just in this little letter, how many times the word truth is going to be used. It's not defined by the beholder. Truth is objective and it is absolute. Now, when John says, my children, he's not completely clear what he means but he certainly does not mean his actual biological offspring. He did not father all of the people in that church, and we know that. Don't think John ever actually got married as far as we know. So what does he mean? Does he mean those whom he personally led to Christ, converted and discipled? Perhaps. Perhaps he just means those who are in the churches that he helped to get started. What he means most likely is that second one. Those who are in the church who are the product, you might say the offspring of those planted churches. Those who are a part of the ministry that he began, he has no greater joy. Now, that's amazing. You might think, I have no greater joy than quiet times where I sit there with my Bible open and my Beth Moore study guide and my highlighters and my coffee and my Instagram. That brings me the greatest joy in the world. He doesn't say that. John's greatest joy is hearing that the people of those churches are walking in the truth. That's instructive. That's really interesting. Every now and then, happens more often than you might think, I'll get a note or a text or an email or a call from Matt or from Mike, and they'll say, hey, I just got to tell you this story of what's going on in this person and what the Lord's doing in their life. And you can hear the emotion and the affection in their voices as they're telling me. And I'm telling you, my heart bursts. Whatever else is going on bad, those stories, those recountings of how the Lord is working in some of your lives, I mean, it brightens the whole rest of the week. John says, my greatest joy is that I get to hear that some of you are experiencing that. And again, remember, John, he got to be at the Mount of Transfiguration. He sees Jesus revealed in all of his glory. He gets to see Peter offer to make snacks while that happens. And John's like, ha, ha, ha. And yet, his greatest source of joy is not thinking back on that. It is thinking and seeing and appreciating how others are being impacted, how they are growing in their relationship with Christ. Which leads us, finally, to our big idea for this entire sermon series through the book of 3 John. It goes like this. Joy comes from seeing others grow in Christ. Joy comes from seeing others grow in Christ. Now, I want for us, I pray for us, that we will adopt that mindset and that attitude as we think about our church that the year 2020 would be the year that all of us individually and corporately would begin to think more and more and more about our churches. Hey, my joy comes from seeing somebody else grow in Christ. And that we would shift, perhaps 
tectonically away from the default human mindset that says, I wonder what my church can provide for me. Are they providing the music that I want? Are they providing the ministries, the programming that I want? Do they have the coffee on tap that I want? But perhaps if we begin to say what God actually wants is for us to be a part of, producers of, somebody else growing in Christ because that is the deepest, most amplified source of joy is seeing somebody else grow in Christ. Well, John's going to move on here in verses 5 to 8. He again calls him beloved just because Gaius needs to hear this. Why? Because again, I don't think Gaius was feeling very beloved. This is why in the book of Joshua, over and over and over again, God's going to tell Joshua, be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. Why? Because Joshua probably wasn't. He's probably scared, spitless, that he has to take over from Moses after his departure. So God tells him over and over again, be strong and courageous. In the same way, John says, Gaius, you are beloved, despite how you might feel, despite how it looks. And Christian, you are beloved by the king of the cosmos. It is a faithful thing that you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are. I am commending you, Gaius, because you are risking your own personal comfort and convenience for the sake of another. Gaius, you are beloved. I love you in the truth, that is the gospel, and I'm hearing reports that you are risking your own comfort and convenience for the sake of another. Well done, Gaius. Keep it up. You don't know them. They're not going to be able to pay you back. Apparently, there were some missionaries coming through Gaius' church, and he was resourcing and funding them. Verse 6, these who testify to your love before the church, you will do well. That means you should. It's a little colloquialism there. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner, ooh, worthy of God. Not in a manner as though I was there. No, no, no. In a manner worthy of God. Show hospitality to others, even if they're not like you, even if you don't like them, in a manner worthy of God. So let me put it this way. How we host others is an expression of worship. It's not because of their worth that we host them well. It is because of God's worth that we host others well. How we treat and interact with other people in this building, in our small groups, with our other church family members, is an expression in and of itself of worship. Now, I'm immediately convicted because I have some extended family with me this morning here in church, and they were guests at my home this weekend, and I'm realizing, "Uh uh-oh, I wasn't real worshipful, apparently. How I hosted them was not awesome in a lot of ways, but... They came anyway because they're gracious and they love me. How we host others, how we show hospitality is actually an expression of worship because God is worth it. Verse 8. Oh, sorry. uh, Verse 7. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. That's a weird little expression. Here's the deal with that. Orators would go from town to town and they were uh, always in competition with one another to see who could get the most support from the wealthy uh, Gentile donors of the city. John says, these people who have come through your church, they're not like that. They're not trying to ratchet up support and finances. They're just coming through because of their worth. And why have they done this? They have gone out for the sake of the name. Now, I love this. John gets this. Way back in the early part of his ministry, after the ascension of Jesus Christ, in Acts chapter 5, verse 41. 
Peter and John begin to be persecuted because of Jesus. Acts 5.41 says, Then they, Peter and John, left the presence of the council of the Sanhedrin of Jerusalem, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. For the name. John understands that there are some people that he doesn't even know who have come through Gaius' church who found the name of God, the name of Jesus, worth suffering inconvenience. And so they have been shown hospitality. Verse 8, Therefore, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. Apparently, John thinks that, yes, evangelism and mission and discipleship still matters. The truth must be dispensed. Well, one of the subtitles that I like to call Third John is sort of a tale of two brothers. We have Gaius, who was commended over and over and over again. Now we meet the antithesis, the example of how not to be, of who not to emulate. Verse 9, I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, <laughs> that ought to be a clue, but we're not native Greek speakers. Diotrephes essentially means cherished by Zeus. Now that's bad. Cherished by Zeus, and he is asserted himself he is himself forward in this church and he's beginning to run up against and he's trying to confront Gaius but Diotrephes who likes to put himself first does not acknowledge our authority this is that of John as an apostle so verse 10 if I come I will bring up what he is doing talking wicked nonsense against us apparently Diotrephes was stirring up people probably originally and initially in a good way, saying, hey, listen, we're suffering persecution. We can't worry about all those other churches, all those other people on the other side of the world or on the other side of town. We can't worry about them. We've got to huddle up ourselves. We've got to make a rainy day fund for ourselves because we just never know how bad things are going to get. I don't want to hear what John says. We've got to take care of ourselves. And John's calling that wicked nonsense. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. This church was certainly planted by John with a leadership of elders, a plurality of elders. But because of whatever reason, perhaps personality or affluence or influence, Diotrephes has pushed himself forward and has a louder voice and has begun saying, we're not going to host these people. We're not going to waste our resources on them who come through our church. We don't know them. We're going to spend it on ourselves. And if anyone wants to support these people that come through, we're going to kick them out of the church because we don't want to be known as hospitable people. That's a very, very bad model to follow. Verse 11, he calls him beloved for the fifth time. Do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. We always become like that which we behold. Which makes me wonder, where are my eyes resting most of the time? We always become like that which we behold. That's whatever we see is what we will imitate. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. And then this third person, Demetrius, has received a good testimony from everyone. He's probably the bearer of this letter from John, wherever John was, probably in Ephesus, we don't know, to some other place in western Turkey. He's received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. Hmm. The gospel confirms the ministry of Demetrius. What he is doing is affirmed by the gospel. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. John adds his own seal of approval, good leadership. This letter was obviously to be read in the church. He's affirming Gaius publicly. He's affirming Demetrius publicly. Always praise in public. 
Critique in private. John's showing us good church leadership here. Verse 13, I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink, hence it only being 300 words in 15 verses. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Listen, I think this is a great principle for us. We love instant messaging. We love text messaging. We love email. We love social media. But there is no substitute for people in proximate nearness with other people. We try to do that as often as we can here downstairs in the foundry. We try to create spaces where people can be in small togetherness. We've had an incredible year this year of more life groups launching, more people getting involved in small togetherness, and we want for more because it is when people get together in small togetherness that the work of God gets done. There's no replacing that with any other sort of digital format. He says, I hope to see you soon. We will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends each by name. I love that. Because people need and want to be known. They were created to be known. I think the overall thrust of this letter is fairly clear. Joy comes from seeing others grow in Christ. So let me just give three very quick concluding principles for, I think, how we can apply this little letter to our lives, looking back on 2019 with all the wonderful things we got to do together with baptisms and communion, with conferences and concerts and study of God's Word through the book of John, starting the book of Romans, all the other things we've gotten to see, more life groups, more women's Bible study engagement, more men's groups meeting together, and what is our focus? What's our emphasis for the coming year? That we would be a part of seeing others grow in Christ. Or I might sort of nuance that. That we would continue to want to see God do for others what he has done for us. That our focus and attention would get off of ourselves solely and individually. That we would have a heart for those around us in this room but even for those who are outside of these walls, that we would have a heart for our city, that we would see the wreckage around us, and that we would be a part of seeing what God's going to do in them to lead them into a growing relationship with Jesus. So, a few quick principles. Number one goes like this. God gives us influence to impact others for His sake. Gaius was using his influence to be Christ forward, to put it in the common speak of these days. He was very Christ forward. Alternatively, we have this Diotrephes who is using his influence to be self forward. It was all about Diotrephes, putting himself up and forward. And so consequently, Diotrephes has been immortalized for the last 2,000 years as the guy not to imitate, Right? Everybody has influence at some level. Even if you think that you don't, you do. You have to know that you are beloved. You have been redeemed. And so everybody has influence. So, so who's a leader in the church? On the one sense, everybody is. You are. No matter how much you might feel about demurring, like, oh, I just, I don't know much about this or that, or I can't do this. God has given you some influence at some level to impact somebody else. So I want to challenge you to pray this week as we go through the new year. You might have a little bit more downtime, a little bit more margin for some personal time and space and prayer. I would challenge you to ask God, what is the influence that he has given you? How can you unleash it for his sake into somebody else? I can just about guarantee you God's going to give you some alternative opportunities that perhaps you haven't considered before. We want to be intentional about raising up additional people 
additional men and women to love and lead and guide and guard in our children's ministries, our student ministries, our small group ministries, our women's Bible studies, our men's groups. Increasingly, we want to be very intentional about building leaders. I can tell you that we are a very fertile campus. We got babies everywhere. And we need more and more of you to lovingly lead and guide and guard these little people as we continue to grow in our children's ministries. They're not the future of our church. Listen, they are our church now. So we want to be intentional about unleashing you to use your influence for the sake of somebody else. Second point, love often requires voluntary suffering. That's what it means to love someone well. You know this instinctively if you're married, if you have parents, if you have children, if you know another person. You know how this works instinctively, reflexively. You will voluntarily suffer for their sake because of how much they're worth to you. But church is that unique, unique body of believers where I get to voluntarily suffer for the sake of somebody else. I get to eagerly enter into inconvenience for the sake of somebody else who might not be like me, who might not <gasps> vote like me. Because here's what I know. The world in which we live is desperately seeking community, and they're looking in all the wrong places. And all too often what the world outside sees of the church is bitter, angry, cynical, sealed-off people who will only love those who are exactly like them. Thanks be to God. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus loved people <laughs> like me. I wouldn't touch me with a 39 and a half foot pole. But Jesus did. He voluntarily suffered for the sake of another. That's what it means to agape somebody else. Said it earlier, I want to say it again. How we host, how we engage others is actually an expression of of worship. How we enter into conversations and proximity with other people actually demonstrates and declares how we really feel about God. I want you to hear that for a moment. How you engage and deal with other people actually demonstrates how you feel about God. If I'm not so sure God's got my back on this, if I'm not so sure God has given me every good and perfect thing that I need, and I trust that the gospel has given me every goodness not so sure about that, that I'm going to be a little bit hesitant to enter into somebody who might make me uncomfortable. So how we engage with others. And so I just want to say as emphatically as I can, I am hereby formally and officially giving all of you permission to be unleashed in loving one another. You, you don't need anything else, not a formal engraved invitation. I'm giving you permission if you are a believer, that means you have received all that you need and you are now unleashed to love others, which leads me to the third point from this passage. We can give our lives away because we have His. Now, I just want to tell you, as I get on the web and I look at the news and I see the news on TV, I am consistently gobsmacked by how much pain and problem there is in the world. And it all stems from the singular sin issue of it's my world and everybody else's life is for me. That is the default human assumption and posture. It is your life for me. 
But the gospel comes in and says, no, 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 I'm actually taking your old life from you. The life that you complain so bitterly about anyway, I'm taking it from you. I'm giving you my life, Jesus says. And now Christians are those weird, rare people who can walk around their world, their sphere of influence, and live my life for you. My life for you. My life for you. And I'll tell you, this world is desperate for that kind of love and community. They may not know about all the doctrine and the theology that you care about. They have no idea what the timing of the rapture is. And by the way, neither do we. They don't care about that. What they want to know is that someone loves them for their sake, not transactionally. And we are unleashed. We are free to do that. And it might cost us inconvenience. It might cost us prestige. It might cost us resources. It might even cost us our lives. That's okay. You die, you get Jesus. You live, you have Jesus. Where do I sign? I'm in on all of that. We get to give our lives away, to live generously because we have his life already. We get to, as he said in the Gospel of John, chapter 15, we get to enjoy this life with the joy of Jesus. So I pray that the year 2020 for Bethel Bible Church, all five campuses, and in particular the downtown campus, that we would be ever increasingly the recipients of joy from seeing others grow in Christ. I just want you to imagine, what would it be like this time next December if we look back and we had 10, 20, 100 stories of someone saying, I've never had a year like this where I got to see my children, my neighbors, my coworkers, the people in my small group. There was a wrecked marriage, and by God's grace, we dug it out, we suffered through it, and we loved them back to wholeness and wellness and put them on a trajectory of wellness. It's the best year of my life. Some of you have experienced that in this very campus, and you would not trade it for anything. We know there will be opportunities for that and more. So if you're here this morning and somehow you've made it into a Bible church at the end of the year on the third floor at 10.30 in the morning through the rain and mist and somehow you're still not a believer, I invite you to believe. Jesus is precisely who the Bible says that he is. He is the Son of God, incarnate, became a man, lived a perfect, sinless life, fulfilled the demands of the law, and then takes that perfectly completed scorecard, signs it with his name and his blood, and hands it to you as a free gift. This is what you must have to have eternal relationship with the Father. And I've taken that card, and I've received it because I believe. And because of that, I get to look at everybody else who has as well, and know that your finished scorecard isn't yours, it's that of Jesus. And there's this joy, there's this openness of community because of the gospel. And if you've never actually believed that, I invite you to believe. Against all explanation, I invite you to believe. That you would step out of death into life, out of darkness into light, and that you would have the boldness and the courage to talk with someone you know and love and trust about that. They could lead you into a growing relationship with Jesus. Me, one of our staff, one of our elders, our deacons, other ministry leaders in this room, I challenge you to not sit on that if you're not a believer. I invite you to believe. We're gonna have someone here at the end you can pray with if you would like to speak with someone here. We'd, we'd love for you to do that. If you are already a believer, you're here because you believe in the church gathered and the people of God coming together to worship and that's why you're here, I wanna challenge you that 2020 would be the year of somebody else. I don't know if you do this kind of thing, if you'll take a dry erase marker and write their initials on your bathroom mirror, that every morning as you look at yourself, you will see those initials and you will fight for the faith of the soul of another. 
that this would be the year of somebody else in your life. And I do pray that all of our physical health would line up with our spiritual health and may they both increase. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for who you are, for what you have done. We thank you for the gospel, the good news of what you have done in Christ to redeem us to yourself and most gloriously to one another. I'm thankful for the words of John that his greatest joy was seeing those in the church grow in their relationship with Jesus. Yes, we certainly like to apply that to our own families and our children, and it's true, but John meant so much more, and so do you. And so may this coming year, God, be the year, although 365-day time spans don't matter really all that much, they help us to sort of set our goals. So we pray, God, that you would change our hearts away from ourselves to that of another, that we would have the joy of seeing someone else grow in Christ. And we know, God, that if and when that happens, of course, we will grow closer to Jesus. So may it be exactly as I have prayed, or even better, because you're gooder than we can imagine. We pray all this in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.